You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. We have continued our study this morning in uh, the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah first heard that the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruins, this is chapter 1 verse 4, he sat down and he wept and fasted and and prayed and it's important for us to remember Nehemiah responded with this kind of emotion not simply because of the condition of the walls but also the condition of God's people their testimony before uh, the nations he wept because he understood that the broken walls pointed in many ways to the people's broken relationship to God their spiritual condition was in ruins and their greatest need was to turn back to God they needed revival and so these last chapters of Nehemiah are focused around really God reviving God reforming renewing his people they'd been away from God in exile they had returned back to Jerusalem um, and they rebuilt the walls around the city but this was not the end of God's work God wanted to renew his people. So last week when we looked at chapter 7 and 8, we saw that when God revives his people, one of the the things that happen is they get back to the word. And they center their lives around the word of God. Today I want you to notice a second uh, component of God's reviving work. and, And that is that when God revives his people, they confess their sins. And we see this in the opening verses in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for this opportunity we've had to worship you through singing today and to cast our minds to Calvary. Lord, may we continue worshiping you now by being attentive to what you would say to us from your word and the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would use me today as your instrument, your servant, that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the greatest promises of the Bible is found in 1 John 1, 9, a verse that many of you have committed uh, to memory. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess means to acknowledge or to admit. If we come to God, the promise of this verse, acknowledging our sins, He will forgive us and make us new. Confession is not just good for the soul. It's an absolute must for anyone desiring to be in a right relationship with God. Confession is the doorway to forgiveness. 
the doorway to renewal and revival. So we shouldn't be surprised at all by what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 9. According to verse 1, about three weeks have passed since chapter 8, the events of chapter 8, when they assembled to hear the word of God from Ezra. And you remember upon hearing the word of God, there was grief. They were burdened over their sins. They were burdened about how far they had uh, drifted from, from God. They were grieved over uh, that distance in their relationship. But here in chapter 9, we find them gathering together to get, again. And this time it says they were fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. This was symbolizing the, the, the mourning and humility that they were experiencing. They were, they were convicted because of the brokenness that their sins had brought in their life, and so they were confessing them. Verse 3, it says, They stood up in their place, read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, notice a couple of connections here right from the beginning. First of all, the connection between the Word of God and confession. Because it is no minor matter that we see this happening again and again in the Bible, that when God's people gather together, they gather around the Word of God. It happened on the first day of the month, back in chapter 8. It happens again here. And the priest had been reading God's Word for a quarter of the day, it says. The people spent the next quarter confessing their sins. You know, th there can be no true sense of what sin is or a knowledge of why it is sinful apart from the Word of God. We, we will never acknowledge our sin. We will never be grieved over our sins if we don't come to see our actions as contrary to what is in the Word of God. We don't define right and wrong. We, we, we don't decide what sin is or is not. God does. And He does so in His Word. Without His Word, we don't know what to confess or where we should adjust our lives. And so this is why, I think, again, revival does not come apart from a renewed commitment to put God's Word at the center of our lives, our homes, our churches. And as we do that, then confession will be something that will naturally flow out of our lives because the more we are in the Word, the more we are reorienting our lives around that very Word, confessing our sins, responding in obedience. There's another connection here, though, notice. Notice the connection between confession and our worship. Verse 3, again, they read from the book of the law, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of it they made confession and they worshiped. They worshiped the Lord their God. Notice that worship flows out of confession. Worship is the response of the confession of our sin. So we have the Word of God which reveals our sin, which leads us to confess before God our sin, which then results in worship. Worship flows out of confession. It may be one of the reasons why that many worship services fail to get off the ground, so to speak, is because we're not participating in that process. We come, we, come, we look for our 
our favorite seats. Don't tell me you don't have a favorite seat. I know you do. We, we want to hear our favorite songs. We hope that we hear our favorite ones, and we hope to hear a, a, a sermon that makes us feel halfway way good. And then, then we kind of leave sometimes disappointed because none of that really kind of plays out for us. Uh, I was reading this week, a, a lady once asked Albert Einstein to send to her a short definition of the theory of relativity. And so he sent her this theory. He wrote to her, he says, if you sit on a park bench with your best friend for two hours, it seems like two minutes. But if you sit on a hot stove for two minutes, it seems like two hours. That is relativity, he said. And if you reply that to, to the church, it, it might be something like this. If you attend a ball game for two hours, it seems like two minutes. Uh, but if you attend church for two minutes, it seems like two hours. Why is that? I, I wonder if it's because we, we don't come with, with the mindset to, of, of what we are really supposed to be about doing when we come together together, to humble ourselves, to prepare ourselves spiritually. We, we come with little thought about the Word of God and, and our sin and our need to come before Him and confess our sins, and therefore we have... Little worship. As one commentator put it bluntly, perhaps worship has become less meaningful to many because of our willingness to tolerate sin and to live with a defiled conscience. We just don't take it very seriously. Real revival and renewal will never come unless we break out of this pattern in our lives. Well, when we understand the, the holiness of, of the God that, that we are worshiping and, and His Word, the truth, and how we're to reorient our lives around that Word, and that means we have much confessing to do. This is not just on Sundays, by the way, but every day of the week. This is how a healthy Christian lives. He lives reorienting himself or herself around the Word and confessing sin and worshiping God. This is how a healthy congregation works and worships. So that's why what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 9 is such a great encouragement and example for us. Verses 1 through 5, you have kind of a summary a bit of what happens. But then in verse 6, it, we, it, it, there is a lengthy prayer, another one of those lengthy prayers in Nehemiah that, that are beautiful and recorded for us uh, to teach us, uh, it, it's a wonderful model for us to pursue and practice. And so let's give our attention to this word and how this plays out in, in our fellowship, in our, in our lives. First of all, notice that confession begins when we recognize the greatness of God. The greatness of God. And there are several characteristics of God's greatness that just kind of spills out of this prayer. So let's walk through some of them. First of all, they acknowledge that God is God alone. In verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that's, that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Remember, this was significant coming from a people who had forsaken this one true and living God to worship the Baals, the idols. Uh, they, they had spent the better part of 400 years struggling with idolatry, with having other gods. This is, in large part, why they, why they ended up in exile to begin with in Babylon. But here, notice this prayer. God, you are the God alone. 
Notice the change, the confession. God alone rules with authority and power. God alone creates the heaven and earth and therefore owns everything. And every minute and every, every breath, every living thing is sustained by this power of God. You, he says, you preserve them all. You are God alone. Notice verse 7, uh, that they remember that it was that God had initiated a relationship with them. Verse 7, you are the Lord. The God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Why? Out of his grace, God chose them. They didn't discover God. He sought them. He called Abraham, initiated a covenant with his people, and they became his children, and he became their God. He, the incredible blessing of this, this God alone had initiated a relationship with them. Third, they acknowledged that God had redeemed and provided for them. Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. He's saying God rescued them from Egyptian slavery. He delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh with mighty power and signs and wonders he did this. Notice, God had guided them, verse 12, by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. God did not leave this people that he had redeemed to himself, but he, he instead led them and guided them. In fact, uh, he gave them his law. He showed them how they should live. How to have life, verse 13, you came down to Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. And gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Notice verse 15, God brought them to the promised land. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought water for them out of the, the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to, to give them. In other words, God is faithful. He was faithful to them at every turn, faithful in every word, faithful in every promise to his people. Why does he, why does he start in this prayer with these kinds of things, with events, by the way, that none of them in this previous generation had witnessed. These are from generations ago in the Old Testament. I think it's because of the need of every generation to recognize the greatness of God. Our generation must recognize His greatness. To see Him for who He is. To see Him as our Creator, as the one true and living God, the one who redeems, the one who guides, the one who provides, the greatest, the most glorious being in all of the universe. These are the truths about the person of God that we must pass on from generation to generation and cling to. And here's why this is so important in our worship, because if you don't recognize the greatness and glory of God, the fact that He is our Creator and He is our Judge and He is our Redeemer and that He alone rules the world, if you don't recognize the greatness of God, your sin will always seem insignificant. 
Your need for God will always be eh, kind of based on feelings in the moment of the day. Life will revolve around you. It will revolve around your needs and your desires and your wants and not a, a sovereign, holy God. Someone captured it very well with this statement, sin is insignificant to a people who view God as insignificant. Much of the reason we don't practice confession today is because, frankly, we have a large view of ourselves and our own goodness and a small view of the greatness of God. And so we sometimes even reason, why do I need to confess? What do I have to confess? This is why it seems bizarre to us as we read this. It seems bizarre to me in chapter 9. The people are here, they're on their faces, and they've got dirt on their head, and they're in sackcloth. I mean, no one would do this today. We, we are much too good for that. Our worship is much too dignified for something like this. But the only way this makes sense is when we begin to understand the greatness of the one whom we've sinned against. The glory of the one whom we've wronged. And, and when realizing his greatness, this will be the first step to understanding your own smallness and your own sinfulness. Here's what this leads to. Secondly, to acknowledge the seriousness of sin. Because when you begin to recognize and focus on the greatness of, of God whom you have sinned against, it will lead you to think about the seriousness of your own sin. We don't have time to look at every verse, but let's notice several of them, beginning in verse 16. Remember, we've been talking about the amazing goodness and blessings of God, but here's verse 16. It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. This is exactly what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. It is refusing to bow down before God. It's continuing to live your own way of life, to follow your own desires, to follow your own heart, to follow your own whims, your own flesh, to do whatever you would like to do, stiffening your neck against God and His Word in spite of all of the incredible things that God has done for you. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and they said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. Then notice verse 23. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess how did they respond to all this? Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them 
in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously, and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they, they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey Notice the language goes back and forth in this narrative. You did this, God. You did these wonderful things for us, but yet we acted this way. God blessed, we rebelled. And so there's an acknowledgement of the seriousness of sin. It's really an amazing work that's happening here, and I think it would be, we should say, this is a work of God in the people's hearts because they're not justifying their sins. They are not sugarcoating them. They're not making excuses or blaming other people's or circumstances for their sins. They are owning their sin. They are owning their guilt, and they are taking responsibility. Church, this is the essence of confession, and it's so important. I heard about a guy who went to the doctor because he had a serious problem. He said, Doc, I hurt all over. He says, if I press my finger to my arm, it hurts. If I press my finger to my side, it hurts. If I press my finger to my neck, it hurts. The doctor said, well, let's take some x-rays. And a few minutes later, he came back. He said, well, you, you've got a big problem. He says, we're going to have to do surgery. You've got a broken finger, he said. And it's so easy today to point fingers at all of the problems around us, all the brokenness, all the hurts in our country, in our world. And there's no doubt that there are problems and hurts, but the Bible consistently calls us to point our fingers back to ourselves. And when we do, we discover it's we who are broken. It's we who are sinners who need to confess our sins before God. This is also where we're reminded that confession isn't just admitting that we're wrong, that biblical confession involves repentance. And it involves changing the course of your life. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Hole in Our Holiness, writes this. He says, it's one thing to sin your heart out, mumble a few sorries, and get on with your life. It's quite another thing to hate your sin and to cry out to God and to make a spiritual U-turn. Real contrition is hard, painful work. Thomas Brooks put it like this, repentance is the vomit of the soul. I don't want to gross you out, but that's, a, that's an important metaphor, isn't it? I hate throwing up. And there's nothing pleasant about that. When I do, it tells me that I'm sick, right? I've got a bug, or I had some bad Mexican, or something, you know. Something is wrong. Genuine confession means not just admitting something's wrong, though, but it means changing the course of my life. It's repenting. It's turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Again, DeYoung, this insightful here, he writes, there is an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sins. Repentance turns away from past sins. Regret looks to our own circumstances. Repentance looks to God. Most of us are content with regret. We just want to feel bad for a while, have a good cry, enjoy the cathartic experience, bewail our sin, talk about how sorry we are, but we don't want to change. 
See, but that's exactly where genuine confession leads to. A turning. Just as throwing up is not easy, neither is repentance. But, but one is much sweeter than the other. Because as you recognize the greatness of God and you confess the, the seriousness, you acknowledge your sin, turn from your, turn from your sins. Here's where the beauty of this passage shines, where we remember the availability of mercy. This is the best part. This is where you get your appetite back. This is the kind of confession that opens the pipeline for God's mercy in your life. And this chapter is filled with reminders of God's mercy. Uh, verse 17, in the midst of their stubborn rebellion, we were just reading about verse 17, they refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck, appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Notice, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Though they had sinned greatly against God, we read in verse 19 again, it says, In you, in your great mercies, God did not forsake them in the wilderness. That's mercy. Look again at verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Beloved, the God that we've gathered to worship today is not just a God of second chances, but a God of many, it says. Many times, His grace is unlimited. His mercy doesn't run out. Verse 31, after rejecting the warnings of God through the prophets, it says, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. How glorious is that? How many of us today can say that our own history is similar to this particular pattern that we see here, God's people in Nehemiah State? How many of us can give testimony of all the times that we've turned away from God and forgot His goodness and stiffened our neck like fools and yet, that's only part of the story because God in His mercy restored us. That's what makes these verses to me so astonishing, so amazing. Verse 17 in particular, that phrase where it says that God stands ready to forgive. Think about that invitation, church. He's ready to forgive. There's nothing keeping Him from forgiving except our refusal to come to him for if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness this is what gives us confidence to confess and to confess honestly and freely because our God in and through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ is full of mercy towards sinners. He is ready. 
He is able to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that, and that truth, that mercy is what radically changes us because when you receive that mercy and love, it leaves you different. It moves you toward holiness. It moves you away from running from God to running to God. This is the work of, of revival and renewal that we need in our lives. So I ask you today, what's holding you back from coming to God in this way? This prayer ends in verse 38 with these words, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And we're going to talk about the specifics of that next week, but, but again, what stands out to me here is that they made this firm covenant, this decision, this commitment. They decided... God's work in us must come to a place of that. It, it must come to a place of, of commitment and action and obedience where we say, okay, I'm, I'm going to say no to myself and no to my sin, and I'm going to say yes to God. What does that commitment look like for you today? What sin are you struggling with in your life? What did you bring today? What's been floating through your mind during this message this morning? If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Will you turn from it? Will you make a decision today that it says, God, you are so loving. How could, I, how could I not do this? Do you need to commit your life to following Jesus as your Savior and Lord? What would God have you do today in response to this? Perhaps for some of you, it's been a long time since you've come to the front of the church at the steps here and confessed your need for God and your need for him to renew and revive you, to change your heart, to hate your sin, to love him more. These steps are open today, but more importantly, our God stands ready to forgive. Let's worship our King. Father, thank you. Thank you for these words and what happened here in Nehemiah 9, which continues to speak and instruct us for today. Lord, draw us to yourself today in your word, and, and we know what that means, that it, it means that we're going to have to confess and conform and repent. Lord, we do so gladly because of your mercy. So, Lord, may your mercy and love draw us to yourself today to turn from our sins and to turn to Jesus. We give this time to you in worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. 
Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.